when tragedy comes into an individual Christian's life, it's a real natural and a real healthy response to look in the Scriptures for stories of where a similar thing has happened to someone to see if there's hope for you. How many robbers have looked to the thief on the cross? How many adulterers have looked to King David? How many murderers have looked to the Apostle Paul? How many people have denied Christ and then looked to Peter for hope? How many prostitutes have found hope in the woman whose hair and whose tears washed Jesus' feet? How many crooked businessmen have looked at Zacchaeus in order to find hope? How many demonized people, even in their oppression, have caught a glimpse of what it might be like to sit in their right mind at Jesus' feet? When tragedy strikes, I think we're desperate to find a story, an authoritative, biblical, God-ordained story that somebody else went through this, and here's the way God dealt with it, and here's the way they came out. And that's not just true for individuals, it's true for churches. And so what I've been feeling desperately in these days is, Lord, are there stories, are there illustrations in the Bible that would help me to have categories, that would help me to see what has happened here in a biblical light that would perhaps shed some light of hope Upon us, is there hope, is there future for a church that's been so deceived, for a pastoral staff, for me, who should have seen more and acted sooner? Is there hope for a church when worship has been so desecrated? Can God bless us? Has it all been in vain? Those kinds of questions come and you search the Scriptures. I think that's a real natural and healthy Reaction. Before I take you to a text and just give you something to hang your feelings on, the Lord did something for me this week. He did lots of things for me in these recent weeks. But this little note from Switzerland is a special one because I'm wondering if the spouse of this person is here. I didn't ask permission to do this, so I don't give any name, but I'm sure she wouldn't mind. Um... This is an illustration of, of God's work at Bethlehem in the last years. Uh, it's a card from, from, uh, uh, Geneva, I think. And this person and her husband come here regularly to worship. Now, I didn't know the full story here, but I wanted to read you part of her little note. She has no idea what's going on here as far as this discipline. I wasn't a Christian when I first met him, <laughs> leave out the name, here. in 1988. Uh, I had gone through medical school thinking that prayer and the practice of medicine had absolutely no relationship with each other. He took me to Bethlehem Baptist for the first time in the fall of 1988. And I felt like those first few times you were directly speaking to me. It was then I realized that something very important was missing in my life. That spring of 1989, 
I was saved. I sat with him there just crying, knowing I wasn't saved and I was a sinful person. I took the Lord as my Savior at that moment and since then have known the wonderful peace of knowing you are part of the family of God. I can't tell you what that meant to me this week because I think it's been happening. And God is very merciful. And uh, you need to know that wherever your piece of ministry is, in the music ministry, in the choir, in the kids' ministries with the choir, it has not all been in vain. Okay? And I want to show you biblically now a place to go for for hope. And it's Revelation chapter 2 to 3. I'll try to keep this short. I realize we're way over. The kids are going to be getting out of Sunday school. I'm going to get in big trouble here if I take as much time as I wanted to take. So I'll really try to, to do this quickly. And I'll understand if you got to go rescue a kid or something, but uh, all you people out there in the foyer, I'm going to take at least 10 or 15 minutes. So if you need to do something, uh, help me. Um, the Apostle John is writing to these seven churches. And what struck me is not so much that four of them uh, are in difficulty with sexual problems, but that four of them, the Lord Jesus speaking from heaven to these churches, says, I'm for you and I'm against you. I've got things that I like in you and I've got things I don't like in you. And that's what struck me so amazingly. And so what I want to do is just show you a few of these, a few little snapshots here real quickly. I'm passing over a lot of stuff here. Let's go right to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He comes to these churches and he says, I like this, but I have this against you. And that starts to give me a, a means of understanding how the Lord might have been looking at us in these past seven years. Chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot... Endure evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. And then down to verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll see what that is in a minute. So there's his commendation. But now in verse 4, he says, But I have this against you. You have left... Your first love. So they've got a great hatred for evil. They are vigilant against deception. They've got great perseverance. And their deeds of love are drying up. And Jesus is able to come down to a church where the deeds of love are drying up and commend them for something. And like it. And feel good about it. And smile upon it. Let's go to the church at Pergamum. Chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So this church is so strong in a sense that it has a martyr in it and they are standing strong in the face of this pagan worship, the seat of Satan in Pergamum. Now, what would Jesus dare to say by way of criticism to a church that has martyrs in it? Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Well, how can you talk like that to a church suffering even martyrdom? Well, that's just the way Jesus is. And we need to learn how he is. 
I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. And thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there's what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is. It's immorality and idolatry. And those two go often together in life. Sexual energy often feeds idolatry. Now we see this. He approves of their perseverance, even to the point of death, and then he criticizes them for some who have this teaching. Now let's go to the church at Thyatira. We're only going to look at four of them. This one is remarkable because of its contrast with Ephesus. I'll point that out. He commends them in verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. Now stop there. Did you see how opposite that is from Ephesus? In Ephesus, you have left your first love. Here, he says, I know your love and your deeds of late are greater. So this church is exactly the opposite of, of Ephesus. They are soaring in love. Better. Better. So what, what can you fault a church like that for? Verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of adult immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, I think she's a prophetess in this sect of the Nicolaitans. Because it's the same sins. And I have, and I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Now, let's get the contrast between Ephesus and Thyatira clear, because this really this has really made an impact upon me. In Ephesus, it said, this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And I think Jezebel was one of those prophetesses among the Nicolaitans. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, but your love is drying up. And here in Thyatira, you have exactly the opposite. Your love, which was so strong, is even stronger now. And somehow, in that, you are tolerating immorality. Verse 24 is helpful to me because it says not everybody in the church is implicated by that. It says, but I say to you, this is... Um, 2.24, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, namely of the Nicolaitans, uh, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. In other words, I'm not going to fault you. If you haven't been involved in that, I'm not going to fault you. So now here are two churches, Ephesus and Thyatira, and in their struggle to walk in the light of truth and love, they're making opposite errors. The one in its vigilance 
to persevere in the truth and to guard against the false apostles and to hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, their acts of love are drying up. And this one, their love is advancing and they are somehow showing many acts of kindness and tenderness to each other. And all the while, there's this awful immorality flourishing in the church. Now, the Lord does not want us to choose between those two errors. He wants us to see them. And what I feel when I see them is a little different than what I sense others feel. I get the impression many people think the path of love is real easy to find. I don't. I really don't. I think the path of love is really hard to find. I think it's real narrow. It's a razor's edge. And it's between Ephesus and Thyatira. It's not an easy answer to me to know where Bethlehem is right now. I hear diagnoses, simple, quick diagnoses. Well, it's obvious we're Ephesus. The deeds of love are drying up. Well, it's obvious with Thyatira. We tolerate immorality. I don't know. What I know is the Lord is against those two errors. He's against a mushy kind of love that does not hate sin and is not vigilant over the body and its leaders. And he hates the hatred of evil that lets the deeds of love dry up. And we're somewhere in here needing the work of God in our lives. We're both churches. I think that's probably all I need to say this morning. I've got lots more, but all I want you to see There's another church, but we'll just stop here, I think. All I want you to see is when the Lord Jesus from heaven came to the churches of Asia, four of them were mixed, two of them he had only good to say, one of them, um, Laodicea, he had nothing good to say. Four of them were mixed bags. I think Bethlehem's a mixed bag. I think all churches are mixed bags. But I think if the Lord came, if the Lord arrived and took my place here, he would say, this I approve of, and this I approve of, and this I approve of, and I have this against you. And I think our job now is to take heart that what's happened to us is not from heaven or writing off of this church, any more than he wrote off these churches in such terrible mixture. Nor is it a blanket endorsement. I really value David Michael's prayer that we don't come to you as those who know how to do it. We get this reputation all over the conference. Just go to this church if you want to see how to worship. Well, the Lord, the Lord did something to that. I mean, He's speaking to us about how vain has to do as much with preaching as, as music. There's a lot of people who like crafted sermons. doesn't really matter what they say. Just craft, logic, order, gesture. There's a lot of people that can just separate their lives out like that. I've, I've said this sort of thing before. I felt the need to say it often. And I'm going to keep on saying it, and I just pray we hear it. And that the Lord will come, and He'll make us a loving people, and He'll make us a vigilant people, and that I'll learn the lessons I have to learn, 
I suppose it's fair to say that I am known for being vigilant and less known for being warm. I'm not sure what to do about that, except to promise you who have the deepest doubts about my life that I will seek the Lord with all my heart to become what I ought to be. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the lessons you have taught me from these churches in Asia, that when you come, you don't give glib, broad, generalized statements of approval. You divide the good from the bad, and you tell it like it is. This was good, Bethlehem, and this was good, Bethlehem, and this was bad, Bethlehem, and this is bad. And in our lives, Lord, you do that. John Piper, this is good in you. John Piper, you work on this. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church not to panic, not to be alarmist, not to implicate. It seems to me in 2.24 you were so careful to say, those of you who have not been involved in this teaching, I do not lay a burden upon you. And I just want us to hear that. Many of these people need to hear that this morning. As we close, I want us to sing a hymn. And after the hymn, the elders are going to be standing across the front here. And if any of you want to pray or talk, they'll be willing. The hymn is number 517. And it is a declaration of where we need to put our hope now. And I hope you'll sing it as an affirmation of your strong confidence in God. 517, my hope is built on nothing less. Let's stand and sing it together. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. We will be back here in two services with a bulletin next Sunday. You're dismissed.